Welcome to Unfiltered, our newest program in our weekly Fixing Healthcare podcast series. Joining us is Dr. Jonathan Fisher, a cardiologist and esteemed leader in helping healthcare professionals to prevent and address burnout. For 35 minutes, he and Robbie will engage in unscripted and hard-hitting conversation. As nationally recognized physicians and healthcare policy experts, they'll apply the lessons they extract to medical practice. Jonathan, why don't you kick it off? Hey, Robbie. It's so great to be with you again. When thinking about today's discussion, there's something that I think you and I are both passionate about which is an interesting subject because it dovetails with uh, the modern development of artificial intelligence and uh, tech, how technology is going to change healthcare, And also, what are the limits and extents of the power of the human mind uh, as it applies to healthcare, And how will AI fill in the gaps? So as you know, I'm a practicing cardiologist, and there are some critical decisions that I make on a fairly regular basis. Uh, so if someone comes to me with chest pain, I can make the correct decision uh, based on an algorithm that I've developed in my own mind as a result of uh, training and experience. And oftentimes I'll come to the correct diagnosis and I'll order the right test and I'll either decide whether it's an impending heart attack or something that's totally benign and can be reassured. But what I've realized in the mistakes that I've made and the times when I've been wrong is was it possible in those moments that a mistake could have been avoided, could have been avoided by relying on an outside source, even beyond uh, talking with my colleagues or researching the latest um, literature? So AI comes in, generative AI in particular, which is an extension, I see it as an extension of the human brain potentially. And it's not something that I was trained on. And so I'm having to learn it by myself but I'm hopeful, I'm hopeful that by using it in the right way, physicians can potentially avoid medical errors. And I see a lot of potential there. And I also see a lot of resistance. Uh, there's a resistance that comes naturally, you know, as a physician, where I think I know best. I, and please don't tell me what to do differently than I've been doing. So it, there's an element of humility there. I know you've done a lot of research in this area. Uh, you're a huge fan of uh, Daniel Kahneman, who we've spoken about, Nobel Prize winning uh, economist who's talked about this concept of cognitive biases and how the judgments of the human mind can often be limited. Can you share a bit about where you see us going with this intersection of physicians, clinicians, providers, and anyone else in healthcare and how AI is going to augment or get in the way of decision-making for improved patient care and outcomes. Great topic, Jonathan. As you say, the human mind is incredibly powerful. It's what differentiates us from all of the species on the planet. But as you also note, it's very prone to bias and distortions. You know, everyone in medicine is educated. They have a depth of expertise, and they often believe as a consequence that they're somehow immune to these biases and distortions, but the data says it's just as prevalent. So what I would suggest, if you're willing to do it today, is let's go through know, five or six different biases, many of which Kahneman has talked about, as well as other Nobel Prize winners, 
and then see if we can translate them into medicine, both for the physicians who might be in the field, as well as for those who are not. So maybe I'll begin with a couple. Let me start with confirmation bias. This is the tendency to find information that confirms and supports our prior beliefs or values. As a cardiologist, when you see someone and you believe they're having a heart attack or you believe that they're not, you'll take the information from the history, from the physical exam, from the EKG, from the other testing to support your opinion, even though it may be wrong, and as you say, lead to misdiagnoses. And of course, the United States today, 400,000 people die annually from misdiagnoses. And I think what often happens is that the doctors are rushed they often, or most commonly, interrupt patients within 11 seconds. They have a diagnosis in their mind, and they then search and pursue opportunities to find information, physical examination findings, laboratory tests that support what they believe, and they avoid, not consciously, subconsciously, the alternative facts that would disprove what they think and confirmation bias in that way leads them astray. And we can come, I, I think I'd suggest that we come back at the end because it's gonna be similar for each of these, how a generative AI tool like ChatGPT could provide a solution, both by creating time, but also by being able to verify that what I will call the evidence-based or standard approaches is being followed for every patient that's there. The second one, now let me offer a second one and then turn it over to you for additional ones, is the framing effect. And this is the cognitive bias that people view equivalent options differently based upon whether they're presented in positive or negative ways. An oncologist says to you, Jonathan, redo this chemotherapy. It's going to be rough, but there's a 10% chance you're going to be cured. The likelihood is you're going to say, let's begin. Then if I said to you, Jonathan, there's chemotherapy we can offer, and it's going to be rough. And there's a 90% chance you're going to die regardless you're likely to pick the first over the second, although obviously these numbers are exactly the same. If our goal as doctors and nurses and other clinicians is to fully educate patients so they can make an informed decision, we need to be recognizing this and resisting the temptation to present treatment in an overly positive way in one direction or another. Let me turn it to you for a couple more biases that you think apply to medical care. Robbie, those are those are great examples, and they come up, and it makes me think of how often a patient's decision is influenced by the way a, a question is framed. And in a sense, it's not really a fair choice because we've already decided, and there's an element of persuasion. There's a cluster of these cognitive biases, Robbie, and just as a background, you know, I always have this question: why why do we have this tendency to all make the same mistakes in our minds. 
And it's interesting. Is it a glitch in the human brain? Um, most of my reading says that it's not actually a glitch in the brain, that we all systematically to a person tend to make these same mental shortcuts. And part of the reason for that is through evolution, there's so much information coming in through our senses each second, the millions of bits of information that we can't possibly process them all. So it makes sense that we've evolved to make split-second decisions, as Kahneman would say, thinking fast. Um, the problem with that is obviously is that we make a lot of these shortcuts and we miss out often on relevant information and we come to the wrong conclusion. So, so I think that's important, at least for me. I'm coming from the perspective of assuming resistance to the listener, to the physician, to the nurse, to even the executive who might be listening to a conversation like this and saying, well, I don't make those mistakes. Those are for people who are less educated. Those are for people who are less well-trained. I don't tend to make that mistake, which gets me into my favorite of these cognitive biases, which is known as the Dunning-Kruger effect. And the Dunning-Kruger effect has, is, was described by two scientists who basically said that we, this is how I interpret, we all kind of think we're above average whatever we're talking about, whether it's playing chess or tennis, um, or whether it's above average at not being biased. And obviously, we can't all be above average. And some of us are below average and tend to be more biased than others. So the first that I would bring up would be the Dunning-Kruger effect. And that gets in the way of our ability to accept help, whether it's from AI or even asking for a colleague. Uh, the second bias that's very important as we begin this conversation is what's known as the status quo bias, which is, as humans, we like order, we like predictability, we like patterns so that we can have them programmed into our mind and know what to expect later on today or tomorrow. Every day I pick up my toothbrush and I brush my teeth the same way. I drive to work the same way so I don't have to think about it. So I'm less likely to perceive changes or even be receptive to changes in my habits. The applications in healthcare to that are obvious. Uh, I can tell you that, you know, 25 years of practice in, when a new medication comes out, even if it's a new one in an existing class of medicines, I'm going to be very hesitant to make a change, even if I see strong data. There may be compelling data and you'd say, well, why the heck don't you make the change right now? And I can tell you with humility that there's a bias in my own mind where I like things to stay that they are. And we all, we've, so we've described previously how there's really two generations of physicians. There's an older generation and a younger generation. And this may be more prevalent in the older generation. I'm going to, uh, I'm gonna throw one more out there, Robbie, and then kick it back to you. So there's something called the self-serving bias, which is where, if I uh, have a really good interaction with a patient and they have a great outcome, I send them to the cath lab and they, uh, they get uh, the right procedure, I, because of my strong ego, I'm going to tend to attribute that to my own skill and my own intelligence. Um, whereas if I make a mistake, if I make a mistake and I, and I don't do well, I'm more likely to attribute that to somebody else's mistake. I didn't get the information from a nurse. The patient wasn't forthcoming. The patient wasn't um, uh, complying with all the instructions. So we do have this tendency that when things go well, we tend to give ourselves the credit uh, or attribute the credit to ourselves, also known as the attribution bias. 
Um, whereas when things don't go as well in medicine, sometimes we tend to give the blame to someone else rather than looking carefully at where we might have gone wrong. So those are three I wanted to throw out there that stand as obstacles to even having physicians and healthcare leaders acknowledge that we all commit these biases. I love the way you have framed it, but I would add another piece to it, which is that as humans, we have emotions. And that can frequently contradict logic. So if I take your example of the status quo bias, what we know is that people fear loss more than they value gain. If we're going to flip a coin, I'll tell you, you have a, you know, you're going to lose a smaller amount of money compared to what you're going to gain. You should always take that bet because the odds are in your favor, but the majority of people tested by researchers decline because that fear of loss. And that I think accounts or contributes to that status quo bias you just mentioned. As you know, I'm a big proponent of capitation, of physicians, groups of physicians taking a set amount of dollars to take care of a population of patients. Doctors hate things like prior authorization. Capitation eliminates that because now you control that decision-making process. Uh, physicians don't like feeling like they're on a treadmill and they want to be able to do the things that are going to add the most value to patients. Well, that's exactly what happens in a capitated system, unlike fee-for-service. And yet, as you're well aware, progress has been a snail's pace at best. So I think it's that status quo bias that, to me, ties into the emotion of fear and that we have this over emphasis on what can go wrong and we undervalue and fail to see the things that can go right. Similarly, I think that the self-serving bias has a piece, as you described, in the arena of status and hierarchy, but I think it also has a level on which we, where we benefit financially or emotionally from a decision, we tend not to see aspects that are sitting there right before us. And to me, an example occurs when doctors are invited to attend a fancy dinner or travel to a conference at no cost. And they're going to sit there and listen to a presentation on a new expensive medication or medical device. The data says that once they go, they will prescribe the drug or use of the device far more than if they had received unbiased scientific presentation, let's say by a respected uh, academic who was not being paid by the drug or device company. But almost every attending will say, no, I can't be influenced. My clinical judgment is what will be supreme. I'm not gonna alter my choices or compromise them as a result of the opportunity to have the fancy dinner or go to the conference. Every piece of research says they're wrong, but that is the bias that would exist. And I'm gonna add the availability bias. And this is a mental shortcut that allows us to focus or overweight 
things that happen more recently than ones in the past. Let's just say as a medication that has a 10% complication rate, it means that one in 10 people will experience a complication when taking the medication. But if the last patient to whom you prescribed it had a complication, the research shows that it's less likely you're gonna prescribe it again than if the previous five people who came and received the medication didn't have a problem. And statistically, that's completely irrelevant. Nine times out of every 10, there will not be a complication. Or one time there will be, and it doesn't matter the last time what happened. You know, it's like being in Las Vegas and playing craps and believing that if you have a hot hand, the dice are gonna roll differently the next time you throw them. That's another example of this availability heuristic. Jonathan, let's turn to the patient. Is there an area where you can think of individuals receiving care who demonstrate the same kind of biases and I'll say emotionally attached judgments? Yeah, it cuts both ways. Uh, biases are active all the time. And what I'm hoping from this conversation is to normalize them and to help people realize that even the, those situations where we're sure we're not being influenced, the research has uh, shown that we are all susceptible. I can think of a couple examples, Robbie. So um, not anymore, but in my early days as a doctor, I had a very young face. Um, maybe 10 years, people have said 10 years younger than I actually am. And I could see the look on the eyes of patients who would come in and they wouldn't trust me the same way as if I had gray hair, uh, lots of wrinkles on my face. And there's something known as age bias or ageism. And usually it cuts in the opposite direction. So, and, and in fact, I can imagine some of my older colleagues uh, before retirement, 65, 70 years old, where they may have felt judged and they were judged by their patients as perhaps not as sharp, not with the game. So that's one example is age bias. Since we're talking about that, I think it's worthwhile throwing in sort of the most common biases. When, when we hear the word bias, most of us don't think about uh, the availability heuristic or recency bias and Dunning-Kruger effect. What we think about is racial bias and gender bias and age bias. And all of these come into play at when patients come into the room if a woman comes into the room, we know that she is going to get better care in many cases by a female physician. When an African-American comes into the exam room, we know the statistics have shown that there will be better care in many cases, whether it's cardiac care or postnatal care, uh, there are likely to be uh, fewer complications and more appropriate and aggressive testing when it's so-called in-group. Uh, and these biases come out we talked last time about the role of trust. Now I'm talking about the actual level of care that the, that the provider will give, whether or not the patient is within the same uh, group, whether that's uh, gender, age, race, sexual orientation, it just doesn't matter. And patients come with these biases themselves and they often play out in interactions with doctors in non-obvious ways. Uh, they may not say anything but it may result in slightly less compliance, less adherence or less follow-up um, rooted in some level of, of lower trust. So those are some biases I think patients come into the exam room, Robbie. Let me comment first about 
another bias, but then I want to return to the ones you just described because they'll tie us and lead us directly into ChatGPT and other generative AI technologies. The bias I think of when I consider patients is what's called the halo effect. And this is the tendency for positive impressions in one area to influence an opinion in another. As you know, I teach at the Stanford Graduate School of Business and the first class of every semester, I always say to the students, how many of you get great care? And of course, these are students who have spent five years before coming to business school in finance and in venture. They can identify and study down to the third decimal place, the performance of a company. You would think they would know in great detail the outcomes of doctors. But after I say to them, okay, you all have your hands up, how do you know? I watch the hands all come down because of course they have no objective evidence. It doesn't exist in medicine today. We substitute service. We substitute the appearance of the office. We substitute a variety of other factors that have nothing to do with medical quality. And yet that is how patients judge us. And I think it's important for physicians to understand that. They may not like it, but that is the reality. And those institutions that are unwilling to provide excellent patient care are going to be, and by that I mean access and service, experience, they're the ones who will not get the recognition they should for the quality of care they provide. But let's go back to the example you gave. And of course, the classic one happened a few years ago. United Healthcare wanted to offer additional services to its sickest enrollees. And it used not a generative AI. This was a previous generation, what's called a narrow AI, to analyze patient records. And they identified 200 people about 15% of whom were African-American. When researchers went in and looked at the same medical information, they were able to find that 40% of the patients should have been black individuals. So what happened? Well, what they found was that one of the parameters used by the narrow AI tool was the, number, the amount of dollars spent on healthcare in that particular year, on medical care in that particular year, on high intensity care in that particular year. And in American medicine today, black patients receive on average $1,800 less medical care per year compared to white patients with equivalent and equal medical problems. And that was what was happening. Of course, the headlines said AI is biased. Well, that's not true at all. The AI is not what's biased. What's biased are humans providing that care. And this is where I'm optimistic that in all these different areas, generative AI is going to be able to provide assistance because it is a purely objective means of analysis. And when the care provided deviates from what's usually done, and in a situation where 
the likely factor is going to be not one of medical findings, but having to do, as you note, with the race, the age, the um, whether it's male or female, then it can point it out when a doctor prescribes, as happens frequently, 30% less pain medication to a black patient under the false sense, not just the bias, but the false sense that somehow black individuals don't feel the same pain. It can note that this is a deviation from what you normally give after a procedure or a surgery. And that gives you the chance to find that bias and correct it because none of us want to be acting in discriminatory ways. It's just, as you've noted, something that's implicit subconscious in our brains having to do with recognition of others compared to how we look, how we sound, our beliefs and backgrounds. And I'm hopeful that generative AI, by pointing it out to clinicians what's going on, will be able to reduce all these biases and as a consequence, improve clinical outcomes. Mm. Robbie, it's so powerful what you described there, and I've seen those act out in the real world. I'm wondering if you can help me understand, you know, there's, you had a recent episode where you talked about the different generations of AI, sort of from narrow AI to, to generative AI. And when I think about AI, the metaphor of a mirror comes to mind, and it's really, and it's been used, this concept that it can only give us back what it's already been programmed, the data sets um, that, that it's been exposed to. And as you pointed out, a great example that uh, AI is simply studying and uh, feeding back to us the racial biases that we have committed ourselves. Um, how does the newer generation of AI help eliminate or correct for that compared with the older generation? And um, is that something that's, that's possible on the horizon? I love the question because I personally think that we often conflate the different kinds of AI. In brief, and people can go and find the information on my website, uh, robertperlmd.com, but briefly, early AI was rule-based. What was put into the application were heuristics created by humans the way we teach medical students. You know, we tell them that if you're looking at a pathology slide and we see a certain number of mitoses that we call it cancer, and if there's fewer than that number, we call it not cancer. But of course, there's no sharp line between those two. Or we tell them that if the tumor is uh, pushing the tissue away rather than invading, that's cancer. These are the shortcuts, the rules of thumb that exist, but they're far from precise or accurate. So the original generation, I'll say 1980 to 2000, could never be better than and often not as good as the clinicians who programmed it because they could add intuition and experience. That changed in the second generation, this narrow AI. Now we're giving 10,000 mammograms into the application to analyze 5,000 showing cancer, 5,000 not showing cancer. And the application in ways that we don't understand, as you mentioned earlier in the show, using neural nets based upon uh, the way the human brain works and creating deep learning, finds 50 
or a hundred different slight variations, the signs of probability factor to each of them and is able now to reach accurate diagnoses more often than humans. In fact, when a recent study was done, it found that compared to average physicians looking at complex medical problems, these aren't simple ones of memorization, that the AI application performed better, almost twice as frequently, including the right diagnosis of the differential and picking it out as the most likely one in a very complex and difficult diagnostic dilemma. ChatGPT, generative AI is different because it's not given heuristics and it's not trained on this specific data set that it often has bias in it. In the example we used of United Healthcare, but instead it's trained on the entire corpus of information, textbooks, journals. It's trained on the totality of the internet. And I see a time when it's going to be trained on the electronic health record and the information in it and the laboratory results and the results that come out. And they'll put all of this in place, including the entire literature on bias into the analysis. And it's not that it's going to completely eliminate it because it will mimic some of the ways that doctors uh, operate and uh, provide the care. But because it has these balancing forces, I think it will be less so. So although all three are called artificial intelligence and although the latter two all use deep learning and neural nets, the difference in the current generation and why I'm so bullish about it is that it has a much broader corpus a corpus that goes outside of just how doctors are working today. And I'll add one more piece to it, which is that I believe that generative AI will empower patients in ways that none of these previous generations could. Now, what do I mean by that? What I mean is that if you look at even what exists today, generative AI is capable of letting you paint a gorgeous picture even though you've taken no art classes, of writing a song in the style of Drake, as we talked about in a previous episode, without having the ability to play a musical instrument, to program a computer application, even though you've never taken an IT course. And there is no question that it will allow individual patients to make diagnoses and come up with treatment plans. The real question is going to be, in my, from my perspective, is how will we inside the medical profession adjust to that? You know, we're used to the Google search and not wanting people coming in with reams of links and articles. This is different. This is a curated, expert-driven outcome specific to the individual. And I think we're going to have to adjust medicine and shift. And in that process, I'm optimistic that the excellent clinician working with a generative AI application will be able to give far better quality, far easier access, unbiased and more equitable care, and do so at far lower costs. But if it's okay, let's, let's move on to one other topic. 
And that is employee well-being, which I know is something very important to you. Uh, the data demonstrate that doctors, nurses, and support staff are becoming increasingly dissatisfied and burned out. What do you see as the obstacles and the, the approaches that we need to follow in order to be able to reverse the difficulties people are experiencing and help them overcome the demands that stand in the way of the fulfillment? Robbie, it is something that I'm very passionate about. And it's because I experienced burnout myself and I struggled with de depression and other mental health issues while I was practicing as a physician and none of my colleagues knew, none of my leaders knew, uh, but my patients could sense that something was off. And so this really matters. And if we don't pay attention to this as healthcare leaders, uh, we are going to worsen the already anticipated shortage of nearly 100,000 physicians by the year 2030, and somewhere close to that in terms of nurses by the same year. So it really requires, first of all, a new way of thinking about how we run businesses. Uh, organizational design and leadership is something that you know more than most people in the world about. Uh, but what I know is that we can decide what's most important, whether it's profits, so we have to make money in order for an organization to run. And right now, healthcare, many systems are in trouble financially. And we've talked previously how it's natural that when we're in trouble, when we feel threatened individually or as an organization, we tend to have a, a scarcity mindset. We tend to cling. We tend to have that loss aversion that you referred to before. And we also tend to have uh, more biases. We tend to want to cut corners more and we sacrifice things that we think are frivolous. One of those things that many organizations, I think, has sacrificed is the well-being of the individuals doing the care, doing the work. And this isn't just for healthcare. This is for every industry. But levels of burnout, uh, scientifically defined uh, as uh, cynicism, exhaustion, and a sense of ineffectiveness in our work, are significantly higher in healthcare than other industries. So I think, first of all, we have to change our mindset and decide what's most important uh, in healthcare. Is it purely profits or is it the hearts and the spirits and the well-being of the people that work in our organizations? Now, that doesn't mean we should start throwing pizza parties and having yoga and meditation classes so that people feel well. That's not going to answer the real problem, uh, which is employees, physicians, nurses, number one, feel undervalued. And by that, I don't mean uh, not paid enough. That is the case in many situations. But it has to do with uh, the philosophy of a leader in a healthcare system. Do they acknowledge and recognize uh, the contribution that often healthcare systems are supported on the backs of the providers? And I would say if you ask the average provider, you know, as Medscape does every year in their annual survey of burnout, physicians don't feel as though they are valued. They often are the last to find out information when decisions are being made. Um, and there is this sense that they are doing a, a thankless job. So I think, number one, shift the philosophy of organization and put and rewrite our mission statements. So it's not just, it's not only the triple aim in healthcare, um, but it's really this quadruple aim, which is includes patient safety, uh, patient experience outcomes, and also includes physician and provider well-being. So we have to put that in our mission statement. 
Number two, best practice says, if it's important, we have to invest in the well-being of our doctors, our nurses, our pharmacists. And the way to invest is to have a, a whole department or a section that's kind of keeping an eye on whether the organization is fulfilling the mission of looking after the people. And I'm not simply talking about a human resources department. I'm talking about having someone in each healthcare system, like a chief well-being officer, someone who knows about human flourishing, human thriving, and is setting up all of the possible resources and guiding operational reform in the C-suite, always being a voice not just for profits, not just for patients, but also for the providers. And I think those are important places to start. As you know, Jonathan, the unfiltered show that we do is one of my favorite of the four that comes on each month. And I like it because it encourages controversy. So let me raise a point to you, and you are one of the world's experts in this area. I just read a fascinating study about burnout in nations around the world. I don't know if you had a chance to see it, but contrary to what I would have predicted, burnout in the United States is not particularly worse than in other countries. Burnout in medicine is a factor in almost every nation. And I'm starting to wonder whether we're not diagnosing it right. We're seeing a symptom where we're missing the underlying condition. And I wonder if this is just that medicine has become overly demanding because we have so many more ways we can make diagnoses and provide treatment. And whether what's sick is actually, I'll call it the industry. And by that, I don't mean, as you mentioned earlier, simply the, the profit motive. But it's sick because the demands being placed on the, I'll say in quotes, organism is more than the organism is capable of doing. And if that is correct, what it says is that we have to start with a different question, which is that we fundamentally have to understand that burnout is going to exist unless we can control disease, unless we can find the ways to do a far better job at prevention and avoidance of complications, find ways to focus on lifestyle medicine, and maybe most importantly, only because every other industry has done it, figure out how technology, particularly things like a generative AI, can be the solution to eliminate, pick a number, 20, 30, 40% of the work that we do. How would your cardiology department be if there were 40% fewer heart attacks, you could do all the work at the same income and probably go home at night feeling less exhausted. I just throw that out because I was shocked to read this survey. I would have predicted the U.S. was at 60% burnout and the next highest country was at 20%. Any thoughts? Yeah, there's a couple of issues that come up there in terms of the differences among nations. Um, there are enough factors driving the burnout of the physician um, that aren't purely within the healthcare system. Uh, and we, we know that uh, if you take two physicians who have exactly the same patient workload, exactly the same leader, exactly the same pay and the same healthcare system, 
the one that goes home and has a supportive network of friends that has a loving spouse or significant other, the one that eats healthily and exercises on a regular basis, the one that meditates or prays is far less likely to have burnout. So this is not purely uh, a factor of what's happening inside the healthcare system, though it is burnout, there is a workplace condition. There are non-workplace um, factors and some of that may explain why it's just as high in other countries, um, there are non-work factors. There, we also have to take into account there are different ways of paying physicians. You know, we have uh, more socialist models over in, in Europe and uh, our, our own capitalist model here. I think it's a very, it's a very tricky thing. Um, one thing that came to mind, Robbie, when you're speaking, and it ties back to cognitive biases again, the 15 minute visit. So that's part of the reason burnout is happening. Right now, the average physician who sees a, a follow-up patient every 15 minutes can see anywhere between 20 and 30 patients in a day. And as the level of medical diagnoses increases over the last few decades, usually it's a dozen or more diagnoses per patient, that was not the case before the obesity epidemic, the diabetes epidemic, you know, 70s and 80s and even early 90s. But the 15-minute visit forces us to rush. It forces us to do more with less and, and with less time. And that creates cognitive load, not just a cognitive load on the physician, where the mind literally becomes more exhausted because there are more complex patients in the same amount of time. And that amount of time is a legacy from 1992, the, uh, when RVUs were set up and the Medicare coding guidelines were set up. That's when the 15 minute was established. We have not seen any change or extension of that to accommodate not only for rising complexity of medical disease, but also with the Meaningful Use Act and incorporation of technology and lots of clerical tasks uh, since 1992. So in order for us to get away from these biases, we have to first allow physicians a little bit more breathing room and to feel a little bit less like we are on the treadmill of healthcare. And I think th these are some of the factors causing that sense of overwhelm at work, which is certainly one of the top, if not the top causes of burnout in healthcare. I can concur completely with you. I think we may, I don't want to say deviate because I think we're very much aligned is if that is the problem, what is the solution? Because the idea of saying, well, that should be 30 minutes, and that means we need to have twice as many care providers. Economically, we already spend nearly one in every $5 in the US in healthcare. It's not possible to spend 40%. It's just to wipe everything else out. So that's why I said before that we may be looking at the symptom and not the diagnosis, not the underlying problem that exists, which is to say, is there a way that we can actually address, you mentioned obesity as an example, far better than we're doing today, so as to diminish that need? Is there a role? And I don't know yet, because what exists in ChatGPT is a toy. It's going to be 30 times more powerful in five years. But once it's 30 times more powerful, is there a role for certain problems to be diagnosed without a human? It's an uncharted territory. I'm not saying I know the answers. I think I know the right questions, but I don't know the solutions and answers 
that exist. And you're pointing out one other factor. And that is that we all have different abilities. And one concern that I have in some of the work that people have done around burnout is that we don't want to blame the individual. We want to talk about the system, but we also have to recognize that some individuals need more help than others. And I think we may be throwing the uh, baby out with the bathwater if we solely say this is a system problem. And Jonathan, my big concern is we've talked about this problem now for a long time, and I see it getting worse, not better. And again, my diagnosis is that's the pressures that are coming and it takes us back to the emotional part. Every doctor fears more than anything else making a mistake. And the more you rush, the higher the probability something will go wrong. Yeah, Robbie, I, I, I do tend to agree with you on the solutions. And you hit upon the same solutions that I have no doubt have to be the bedrock of change. And it has to happen quickly. Um, as we see the sickening of the American body and the sickening of the American and global mind uh, with rising rates of heart disease, which is the number one killer, anxiety and depression, which are the top mental health diagnoses driving, in my opinion, uh, at least 80% of the behavioral choices that are leading to chronic disease, which are the number one killer. I think you're spot on. We have to think how, in a quick manner, can we shift the model towards a pro preventative, proactive, almost primordial prevention of disease. Even as we're fixing the obesity epidemic now, we're working on it, we can't lose sight of the fact that the only sustainable long-term solution to burnout and to our, our healthcare system and the, and the skyrocketing costs is to shift finally once and for all for a fee-for-service pay for how sick your patients are, not a value-based pay for how healthy you can uh, maintain your patients and how well we can guide their behavioral health choices. And the second piece of the puzzle you also hit upon, which I believe has to do with using technology, uh, not just uh, generative AI, but especially generative AI to take the place, whether it's uh, of coaching. Uh, behavioral coaching, I think, is where a lot of the money is being lost right now. Physicians, nurses don't have the time to do what matters most, which is to guide our patients to make those healthy choices to cut down on medications. We can reverse many forms of heart disease. We can prevent many forms of cancer by using basic principles of lifestyle and preventative medicine, which have been around for decades. Uh, so we have to do both. We have to leverage uh, open AI and uh, generative AI in order to interface with patients to help them as an add-on to the clinician encounter. And we've talked about this before, we can train these models to be empathic, to speak to patients in a way that patients will wanna even listen and to follow instructions of a, of a robot even more than a physician who is already burning out, often rushed, often has had an erosion of their empathy. So they've lost the ability to communicate human to human. I hate to say it, but I think that the AI often speaks to patients and can help them with that behavioral change, which is the only hope for the future of healthcare. Jonathan, you're raising a, a, such an important topic, which is empathy. We've run out of time on today's show. Let's pick it up the next time. Thanks so much for being unfiltered. I love our show. I hope our listeners do too. Thanks, Ravi. Great being with you again. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and we'll tell your friends and colleagues about it. 
Please follow Fixing Healthcare on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast app. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and leave a review. If you want more information on healthcare topics, you can visit Robbie's website, robertperlmd.com, or visit our website at fixinghealthcarepodcast.com. Follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at FixingHC Podcast. Thank you for listening to Fixing Healthcare's newest series, Unfiltered, with Dr. Robert Pearl, Jeremy Corr, and Dr. Jonathan Fisher. Have a great day.